I hope you all fathom that we have no greater event in our lives than the intervention of God's great grace. James paints for us in his epistle a hellish picture regarding the trajectory that we all have regarding sin. He states that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In the first chapter, verse 14. That provides our thrust and our vector. He goes on. That desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. We provide that own, that thrust and the vector toward that sin all by ourselves. And then there's the seemingly unstoppable momentum and pull of gravity, the gravity of that sin, like a rocket going to the moon. Eventually, it is just hurtling because that's the way it's going. The only thing that is going to stop it is like what happened in Apollo 13. Houston, I have a problem. There is an, interven an intervention. But ultimately, for most of us, our sin continues on. And James says in verse 15 that the full, fully grown child of our sin is death. More cold and lifeless than the moon. And apart from the Lord, there would be no hope but God, the intervention of God. He has intervened and called us from darkness into the light, glorious light of his son, 1 Peter 1.9. And even after that intervention, God still moves. God still works. He hasn't just saved us and gone good luck with everything else. He has promised that the work he began, he is faithful to complete. Philippians 1.6, what a promise. And we are promised, as I read in Hebrews chapter 12, that he will discipline those he loves. As a mama disciplines her children, as a father disciplines his sons and daughters. And he gives us commands. He commands us to be holy as he is holy, to direct our destinies after him and not the foolish and feeble lusts of our flesh. So if we buck against God's commands, if he loves us with that kind of love, if he has adopted us as his children, we can bet certainly that he will move heaven and earth to get us where he wants us to be. And that's where we find Jonah today, in the teeth of the storm. Two weeks ago, we saw the great oceanic grace of God toward a pagan nation as he calls a prophet to send to them. And we saw the very peculiar grace of God to the rebellious prophet by sending him a storm. So today we will look at God's multidimensional purposes of grace in the life of Jonah. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in Texas, so we know certainly that the grass withers and the flowers fade. And thank you that you have given us a sure hope that the word 
that you have provided for us stands forever as a bedrock and an anchor. That you have plainly declared that not one dot, not one stroke will be missing until all is fulfilled. You have promised that your word will not return void, that it will accomplish every purpose for which you, which you intend it. You have promised that by your word, that the man and woman of God will be complete, refined, and ready for every good work. So as we come before you today, we pray that you would be glorified in your word, that our ears and eyes would be open to your word, that my lips would be guarded as I bring forth your word. And so we beg today that you would do your good work and let your glory shine. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we're going to look at is what we touched on a little bit last time, and that's the terrible storm of God's good grace. You go, how bad, okay, how bad was this storm really? When it says that in verse 4 that God hurled a great wind upon the sea, that should open your eyes right away. I remember in Burke Burnett when we lived there and, and Jeremy was playing baseball, my eldest, and he started getting some man muscles across his chest and his arms. And he started throwing the baseball and I would always catch it and he was practicing pitching. And when I started hearing the baseball whiz through the air, I went, my days of trying to catch him are done. I can see just short hopping one in the teeth there. But that's my son. I couldn't even imagine what it was like to catch for Nolan Ryan when he was bringing the heat. Okay, a big difference. We see storms around here but when God is peculiarly and particularly hurling a wind at sailors, you can imagine that it was something that caught their attention. The ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid and cried out to his God. I mean, when, when sailors are getting creeped out by the weather, you know the weather's really bad. And each did cry out to his little G God, you know, hey, you know, whatever's good for you, whatever feels good. Hey, do not you do that right now? That would be helpful. So bad was the storm as the ship was laden in the water. It threatened to break up. So to let the wind blow it along, they hurled the cargo into the sea. Okay, that's money. You're, you're essentially, you're burning dollar bills to save your own life here. Their livelihood, they're throwing it into the sea. You go, why, why would God do this to these guys who are essentially innocent? Oftentimes in our life, we don't get Paul Harvey's the rest of the story. But in God's word, we often see how things play out. And we see that as we sing often, God never moves without purpose or plan. God is working here for Nineveh's deliverance. These guys are nowhere near Nineveh, but that's what he's doing. He called a prophet to go and the prophet's going, uh-uh. But he's also calling for Jonah's deliverance. A prophet who is rebellious against the God who has called him to do something. And as we will see later in this chapter, he is working for a pagan's, pagan cruise deliverance as well. 
But this is true for us for all of life. God's guiding and purposed hand never slips from the wheel for anyone or at any time. The storm was God's plan for Jonah and these sailors. Is any storm then arbitrary? If the sparrow will fall to the earth, or in our case, hit the window, and we know that God is aware of this and God is portending and ordaining it, if he knows about the sparrows that smack the window, does he know about the things that are going to smack you in this life? We go, surely. Sickness, health, rich or poor, life, death, famine, feasting, all of them. God is not blindsided. God is in control. And no doubt, I'm sorry, you're not going to know the totality of what God is doing in your life this side of glory, probably. But we can trust God through any storm because we know the end of the story. I've shared this before, but on July 26, 1995, my best friend at that time was killed when his F-16 crashed into the Adriatic Sea. And through a miracle of God that I won't go into now, Less than 24 hours after the mishap, I was on the steps of their home in Aviano, Italy. And I had the blessed fortune to attend church with his wife, Patty, and their children that Sunday morning. She stood up there as the pastor said, Patty, is there anything you'd like to say to the folks here? They had been providing meals and comfort for her. She said with tears streaming down her face, if I could see this with God's eyes, this is the very thing I would choose for my family. And she says that to this day. Patty knew the end of the story, even in the teeth of a ravaging storm. But so do we. Saint, to what end will God go to nurture righteousness and obedience in us? How far is he going to go? Will he destroy a valuable cargo? That's nothing. Will he upset a pagan's religious sensibilities? So much for tolerance. Will he shatter their tiny little God to exalt himself in their eyes? To what extent will God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords, go he went all the way to the cross. We know this. If he did not spare his only son, he will bring to us, he will bring as much as he needs to conform us to the image of his son. To release our grip on sin. To bring about a repentant heart that we might love as he loves. As he loved us. That we might be awed by his majestic glory. And so God, in his terrifying, holy, good, and wonderful grace, sends a storm. In this same paragraph here in Jonah, we see also that God is preparing hearts and stress amidst the tempest. How do we respond to the disasters of life? First thing we see is fear. 
The mariners were afraid. They were terrified. Now, this is not some irrational fear. I'm sure there are some people in Nome, Alaska, which is way up at the north, who fear tornadoes and hurricanes. They're deathly afraid of them. That is the most irrational fear you could possibly have. If you're living in the Twin Cities, you don't need to fear hurricanes. If you live in Miami, you don't need to fear ice storms and blizzards, usually. But these guys are in the midst of real objective fear. I mean, their world is turning them upside down. The storm is not a figment of their imagination. They're throwing money away. And calling out to their gods, the captain goes to wake up Jonah. Get up, you sleeper, and call out to your God. So that's one, one response to a terrible situation like this. Another response, there are some people who go, <clears throat> they absolutely collapse inward. And that's what Jonah did. Everybody else is in an outward panic, and this person collapses into a hole. They withdraw. Jonah withdrew into his own little planet. We find Jonah asleep in the midst of the storm. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. They're they're not stupid. They're just unaware. Jonah's in a coma and the comfy bed is not the reality of the situation. The storm was really raging and something really needed to be done. When everything is raining down around us, I cannot withdraw from the dominoes of disaster that are falling in front of my face. Something has to be done. And interestingly enough, the pagans have it right. They call out to God and the captain exhorts Jonah to call out to your God. But this did nothing. Even though Jonah collapsed into a shell, even though he wakes up and begins to call out to his God, the storm still rages around them. The third thing that we see is oftentimes people feel like, I, I just got to do something, okay? I don't know what to do, but I'm, I'm going to do something. And so they do something completely irrational and they cast lots. Let's read 7 through 10. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has whose whose account this evil has come upon us so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah then they said to him tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us what is your occupation where do you come from what is your country and and of what people are you and he said to them i am a hebrew and i fear the lord the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him what is this that you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, when you are in the midst of a disaster, I am not exhorting you to do something irrational. Okay, rolling dice is probably irrational. Maybe counsel would be better. Probably things on the ship you could do that are better served. But we have to understand that even Proverbs 16.33 tells us that when the dice are rolled Every answer, every decision is from the Lord. And the lot fell on Jonah. Now immediately, I mean, it's, it's karma. 
we in the church have been infected with the Eastern religious idea of karma. If something bad has happened, you've obviously done something wrong. It had actually infected the disciples in John chapter 9 also when they saw the man born blind. They said, you know, whose fault is this? Is this his sin or is this his parents' sin? Now we understand truly that there is consequence to our sin that we have to live with. We see the curses that God is going to bring on Israel for doing wrong and the blessings for doing right. But not everything works that way. We see the unrighteous succeed. We see the righteous who suffer and die. And God makes plain that this is all for his glory. He's not a genie in a bottle. But it's sweet to see that Jonah, when he is confronted, when the finger goes into his chest, he doesn't buckle. He doesn't cave in. He's already told them that he was fleeing from God. And they probably went, <laughs> okay, whatever. No, you're God. Okay, I got my God too. Okay, not, not going to affect me. No big deal. But Jonah didn't shirk. He didn't shrug. He stands up and says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. He testified the truth about God. He stated plainly that he was fleeing. They knew this. And so when the lot falls on him, when he declares who God is, the Lord of the land and the sea, and they recognize that this is now a recompense upon him for what he has done, they are exceedingly afraid. Verse 10. That takes us to our third point. God's unalterable plan is going to be unfolded. It's, it's not going to change. So they're in their minds in verse 11, like, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done to us? We had nothing to do with you and you come on our ship and now we've lost all our cargo and our lives are threatened here. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The solution is throw me into the sea. Jonah knows God. He knows what he's done. He knows perhaps supernaturally that this is a result of his treason, perhaps the severity of the storm. So the solution is throw him into the sea. Man's solution is row harder. Not just like us. We hear what God desires of us in our lives regarding sin or regarding where he would have us go. And rather than relent, rather than go where he would have us go, we fight against the omnipotent all the harder. Like, really? God calls us to spiritual obedience that is fleshed out in our lives and we look to mechanical solutions. Fight as we might, the sea will grow more tempestuous. 
Saint, if God wants you to go somewhere, if God wants you to turn from a sin, he will outlast you. He will outmuster you, he will outbluster you, and you will not be able to outrow God. He will get you where he wants you to be. So, Saint, here's the deal. We can submit and go, submit and repent, as the case may be, or in love, God will break us. He will break us. He will bring us to the end of ourselves that his good, his glory, and ultimately our good are ultimately attained. The Lord disciplines those he loves. So will we follow God in radical, spiritual, empowered, spirit-empowered, life-sacrificing obedience, obedience, or will we continue to go our own way? How radical does God want us to be in our obedience to him? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to go into heaven without these things than go to hell with these things. Yes, it's hyperbole. Or is it? Do we fathom the death and destruction that our sin brings? Do we fathom that God has given us an opportunity to go where he is calling us to go and we're saying no? Only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we do as God would have us do. So we go, man, I don't want to do that. So we just put Band-Aids on our symptoms rather than getting to the root of sin in our life. What serious spirit-led actions am I taking to change the sinful behaviors that fetter my feet? Am I merely taking Motrin to numb my sin? Do I indulge my flesh because I find no satisfaction in Christ? Are my emotions unchecked because I find no peace in Christ? Am I cold and callous because I do not know the love of Christ? I recognize these things. So I try, I strive to reign in my appetite. You know, uh, maybe I put an app on my phone. Uh, maybe I say, well, I'm, I'm gonna swear off of, of uh, you know, some new diet or whatever. I'm not gonna go to the movies anymore. Uh, I'm not gonna drink anymore. Maybe when I get really mad, I'm just gonna count to 10. Okay, dude, what's your problem? It goes deeper than just the superficial symptoms that are erupting in our lives. 
Christ is not in the picture and I'm striving against the storm. The boat of my life is threatening even now to break up. The necessary solution, will we obey? Will we surrender to the Spirit? Will we be empowered by the Spirit? Will we follow where He is leading us? And so they make the decision in verse 14, therefore. Okay, they go, okay, man, we're going to do this. But check out these pagans. This is great. They call out to God. No, they don't call out to their little G-God. They call out to God. They call out to Jonah's God. They have put all their little G-Gods in a case because they're not doing any good. And they recognize that they need to be calling out to the living God. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They used the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in these verses. Now, they don't know his specific guilt. You know, why is he running? You know, why is he running from God? That kind of thing. But they did not feel it. Notice, they did not feel that it was in their authority to execute judgment on Jonah until Jonah told them, and now they are seeking essentially absolution from God. There was an objective knowledge within them of right and wrong. I can't just throw you into the sea. Are you kidding? This objective awareness of right and wrong cuts across cultures. Some would argue it's just one culture borrowing from another, but the most obvious reason is that it is, it is innate within man. C.S. Lewis makes that point in two of his books, both Mere Christianity and the book, The Abolition of Man. The reason there is a common morality within all religions is that the God who created us in his image knit a moral compass into his moral creatures. We are, as we are told in Genesis chapter one, made after his likeness. This is that why that even apart from the word of God, we see such commonalities emerge in the laws of men across nations, cultures, and time. So their action here, their, their lips, the words of their lips imply that they see and exalt the sovereign hand of God in this situation. They glorify God, though they do not know they do not yet know this God personally. They see that it, he has done as it pleased him. Okay, hear this. God has sent a storm to destroy a ship and now they're going to kill a guy because it pleases God. And we need to say amen. But our culture is going to go, that's sick. That is sick. God's word does not blanch, does not recoil from stating very plainly God's sovereignty in all things. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. 
Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. This one's beautiful because it like ties right into Jonah. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Now, I know he's sovereign. I know he's sovereign over the darkness and the light. He is sovereign when disaster strikes. He is sovereign when evil men rise up. And I bristle at this. I do. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do. Why do I bristle at this? Why can I not be still? Why can I not wait upon the Lord? Why do my frustrations mount? Why do I look for ways around him? Why does my seething ignite further seething? Why does my sin lead me deeper into sin? All because I do not rest upon the solid, sovereign rock assurance that God does all that he pleases. And we see the sovereignty of God play out as they hurl him into the sea. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Okay, we read that, and, and there's like nothing else in here. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. That, that, that comes. But you got to imagine being in the midst of the storm, and then he hits the water, and it stops. Who is this God? Have you ever seen this before? This isn't a common occurrence. These are sailors. They've been in storms like this. This doesn't happen in a storm. Jesus did the same thing to the disciples. He's snoozing in the boat. The storm is raging. And they're like, Lord, don't you care? We're going to perish. And Jesus is like, don't you know who's in the boat with you? And Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still. And the disciples, Matthew 8, 27, say to themselves, what sort of man is this? Mark 4 states that they were filled with great fear that even the winds and the sea obeyed him. More terrifying to them than the storm was the man who could speak a word and still the storm. Not a blush of wind, not a ripple on the sea. That quickly. You know, what, what have I been worshiping? Who is this God? The men feared the Lord exceedingly. These pagan men. Because Jonah told them plainly who he was, they now feared him exceedingly. They offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows. They're sailors. Did they tell the tale in the years to come? All was well and good for now for the sailors. God had, in his providence, in his grace, had used this event to shake the ears of some pagans. Now the big question is, what happened to them in the aftermath? 
It's obviously that this word came to Jonah somehow through some of the sailors at some point that he would record it here for us. Did any lives truly change for these men when they came face to face with the living God? How many continued to seek his face in the days, months, years afterwards? Or how many, like no atheists and foxholes, whoo, we're out of that predicament, and you forget the promises that you made and went back to life normal, normal. Such grace that God would show to such men. And then Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Kind of wonder if Jonah just hoped he would die. Is it going to die? And then <laughs> they get sucked up by a fish. We'll talk about that next week. But where does that leave us? You know, I, I know you all. Okay. But I never want to assume that you all know God. There may be some here who we've seen week after week who do not know God. And that the storms of life do not turn them to him. There may be some here who are actually impassive toward God. They have no fear. And in truth, they truly do have more fear than they know because they are impassive toward God. There may be some here today amongst us who do not know God, but this resonates with them in their life. If you are interested and intrigued by God and what he does, then I would encourage you to read more about him in his word. Ask him to lead you and guide you. Talk to the Jonas around you who will testify to who this God is and point you to the God of heaven. My brothers and sisters who are believers, God has asked things of you. He's asked you to go. He's asked you to be obedient. He's asked you to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's asked you to put off the sin that has so easily entangled you. God commands. His commands and guidance for us are good and they are a blessing though they may not be what we want to do. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He had real issues. <laughs> we only scratched the surface. This dude had real issues. He didn't want to go. He was a prophet of God. He loved the Lord. I don't want to do that. God may be calling you to do something. You go, I'm not willing. I want to take the easy way. I think this way is going to be better. This is going to be much better for me. No. Trust what God has said to you. Your flesh may not want to. Know this. If you resist, you cannot outrow God. 
the storm will go greater because of his gracious and oceanic love for you until he gets you to where he wants you to be. Let's pray. Oh God, how we fight. How we fight. And that you are gracious day by day. You lavish grace upon grace to us. Amazing grace, extraordinary grace. As deep as the oceans, your love for us. As high as the mountains. Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that for each one here, you would do your good work. Move us where you would have us to go. Give us the power. Give us the strength. We can't do it by ourselves. We need you. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen.